0: Thank you for joining me, Mark Grixty, for this invitation to explore deeper together into the divinity, science, spaciousness, and intuition of hurt and healing with Awe in Trauma. Hello, David, and welcome. Uh, lovely to have you join me for this episode of Awe in Trauma. Uh, a frequent guest on the show. So great to have you back.
1: My pleasure indeed, Mark.
0: Yeah. So it's always great just to be able to unpack and explore all things with you. Frequent listeners will know that you are the founder and developer of Brain Spotting Therapy, um, which is quite phenomenal. And um, we we also have done some episodes exploring that into some depth. So I think today we were going to look at where we are in terms of right now, where is brain spotting in relation to the neuro experiential model and these exciting developments that are in evolution at the moment. So, um, yeah, it uh, may be mm-hmm. nice to get a sense of where did this idea come from, neuro-experiential model, and, and how long has it been around?
1: Uh, well, actually, I was sort of playing around with brain spotting before I I discovered it, and, and I've been – this neuro-experiential model is just an articulation of my experience – as a therapist right from the beginning and, uh, as, as a senior therapist, being able to reflect back on my own course and my own trajectory. And, uh, I realized, uh, and there's about three, three and a half years ago that I came out, I started to really come out with it formally, gave it a name, a conceptualization, and it's, it, it, it grows every day. But I realized that, without knowing it, that, that what I was doing had very little to, as a brain-spotting therapist, which is a therapist, had little to do with the language and the conceptualization that I was using and that everybody else was using and that I was sort of uh, ushered into and inculcated into from the beginning of my career. A lot of the language and conceptualizations have actually turned over in these four decades that I've been a therapist. So it's interesting that uh, whatever it, it is, it never stays the way it is, but we don't even talk about that. You know, uh, when I was studying psycho- psychoanalytic theory and practice, uh, at the time it was the American School of Ego Psychology, which was uh, Hartman, Chris, Lowenstein uh, Mahler, Jacobson, and so on. And that's that in, in that sub frame, you know, that, that, and Edding and Kernberg and Kohut, that was the stuff. And of course we went back to Winnicott and, um, you know, the, the British school of, of ego psychology, uh, Fairburn, etc. but that's gone now, you know, it's not gone. I mean, that, that circle still exists, but it's kind of, shrunk and sort of, uh, slid over to the side, but, um, and all the conceptualizations from that, you know, everything about attachment, I was studying back in the seventies and eighties. Okay. Much more deeply than it's being studied right now. You know, now attachment, like so many things is part of uh, pop culture, <laughs> yeah. but, um, so, so anyhow, um, I, I through my four decades as a therapist, I observe so many facts come and go, so much language come and go. But it's like we're we're so hypnotized into the fact that the concepts and the language that we use now is what it is. It's what it's always been. It's what it always will be. Instead of the fact that it's it's fluid, um, uh, and evolutionary, uh, but we've kind of gotten stuck on this thing of evidence-based practice and diagnosis-based practice, which are not exactly the same, but they're, they're sort of interlinked. Um, and, uh, and I realized that what was going on with my clients in front of me had uh, like virtually nothing to do with this. The whole CBT, um, uh, uh. I won't say a takeover of of evidence-based because it it really was sort of where it came from. You know, maybe two to 3% relevant to what I was experiencing with my clients. And again, as a leader, as the head of brain spotting and a leader in the field, I recognized this isn't just for me. This is for like all all of my compatriots. And so I decided I was going to come out with new conceptualization, new language, Okay, that was practice-based, okay, as well as scientific, but not not the narrow science of um, uh, single variable, variable replicability studies, but the science, neuroscience, and the and and on a larger way, the science, the sciences of the universe. So, uh, so I mean, I was in process without lo- with that long before I even knew it. But but I realized at a certain point, um, uh, and this is this is personal. Um, you know, my cr- my creation of brain spotting and my development of brain spotting and developing it as a therapy modality and as a uh, as a teaching modality, uh, going back twenty years, and then you know from there, uh, I realized that at this stage, twenty years later, well, at that point it's maybe seventeen years later. I had a lot more to offer that I wanted to make sure that I brought out there. And um, uh, so I – probably six months before the uh, the conference, our, our 2021 conference, uh, I, I started to write about it. I started to put it down on paper. And uh, um, I have been amazed that in the brain spotting community that those who have been exposed to it have adopted it almost immediately. And uh, I have a knack for giving names to things or for developing language. So calling it neuro experiential, you know, people are doing that. Like it's been around forever, you know, when it's really, really very new. Um, But I want to just bring one more, one more thing out. I mean, puzzle pieces just fall into place for me. And the idea of brain spotting as a developmental model, as opposed to a top-down diagnosis model, you know, uh, and of course, the tip, the giveaway about diagnoses is that they all end with disorder, which says it's it's another way of saying this is not a developmental model. Okay, this is a model. This is a pathology-based model, and this is a top-down model. We're going to look at the sys at the the person and the system and the experience, you know, from the top down. It's a small change, but for me, it's a big change. Uh, uh, The you know I would always we use the term symptom, you know, and and I'm going to illustrate this in a larger way. And I recognized a few days ago, what the hell am I doing using the term symptom? Okay, symptoms are are what people have who are sick. These are the symptoms. You have a fever. You have a rash. You know. I don't have to go beyond that with, with symptoms, but those are manifestations of pathology, you know? So, uh, so my latest thing, you know, and I, I, this is, this is, uh, this is what, what I write on. As soon as it comes in my head, I write it on here and then I stick it on a larger piece of paper.
0: David's holding I got a pad of post-it notes, right? There. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, uh, Instead of calling using the term symptom in the neuro-experiential model, we're g- I'm going to propose using the term manifestation. Okay, so instead of it being something that's part of a disorder, or something that helps you to be able to define and diagnose a disorder, it's going to be we're looking at them as manifestations of developmental experience. Mm-hmm. Okay, and. Um, want to add one more thing to this. You know, once I get on a roll, I can just keep going. The, the uh, brain spotting is not a developmental trauma model, you know, with manifestations of dissociation and, and other things. It's a developmental model about human development, okay, which has to do with natural development, has to do with resilience as part of development, has to do with creativity, and, you know, achievement, uh, and social engagement. So it's not, so the development that we look at in brain spotting is the entire development of the self as a manifestation of a development of the species. Mm. So anyhow, I've just been on a roll with this and I just kind of cribbed out with this thing of, of why are we still using the term symptom, uh, and shifting it to manifestation. We always dialogue on this. So I'm wondering what your, your thoughts are on that
0: yeah it all rings bells for me very um we've had obviously different experiences in trainings and in developments you know in our professions mine was clinical psychology but at the same time it was a very reductionist and and restricted way of understanding the richness of the human condition and it was so reductionist that everything was extrapolated analyzed uh, diagnosed conceptualized in such a way that took the issue, if you're going to call it that, you know, outside of the person and was almost treated in isolation of the entirety of the being. And of course, my entirety isn't even just like me at this age or me at previous ages developmentally in my own lifetime. But generationally, even phylogenetically, you know, throughout the development of the species, and it just seemed that this simplification really lost the richness and was almost like a, an attack on the soul in a way. So when I was working with my people as a newly qualified and, and, and for the next few years, uh, it was really difficult trying to meet the person I was working with because my training wanted me to carve them up in a very medicalized kind of way, you know, like the, the broken leg, leg in bed seven on the ward. You know, you kind of you lose the person and you break it down. And as you were talking about the the flow and a developmental model, it reminds me, and and how scientific um, these developments are, it brings to mind very much some of the work of Ian McGilchrist, which I really enjoy. It says that we use the whole brain for everything, but there's very different ways of using our brain. And the left brain seems to me like it's been very present and prominent in defining how we develop as psychotherapists in terms of we dissect and compartmentalize everything. We top it down into little bits, name it, and then it's stuck and static in time. Whereas McGill mm-hmm. says in our more in our right brain function, it's not what's happening. We look at how things are happening. And there's a, there's a lovely difference in a term there, not what's going on for someone, but how is it going on for someone? And then he mm-hmm. says, rather than things being broken down and conceptualized in a static way, everything's in flux and flow. Everything's moving and can only ever be in the present rather than a, a representation, a re-present, which is what the left brain does and diagnosis and these kind of things and symptoms. It's much more of a kind of a dynamic Taoist idea that everything's in continual flow. And to embrace that, you know, mm-hmm. it's so liberating in the work, uh, in, in brain Yeah.
1: I've always seen the right brain as being the artist and the left brain as being the scientist, and that th- that the brain works at its best when the artist gives its giftedness over to the scientist, who who reflects on on the gift that the right brain gave it, and gives its own perspective on it, and then gives it back to the right brain. So now the right brain is, is, is receiving this material and then it starts to do whatever it does, you know, in the spontaneity of the moment. Uh, um, and then it goes back to the left brain. Uh, that's, that's also like where East meets West Mm -hmm. or North meets South. You know, if you want to look at it hemispherically that way, um, you know, it's interesting. I, uh, you, from what i say you might think that i am uh uh hostile towards those who have developed the diagnostic model you know uh and i'm and i'm not uh i'm just more sort of quizzical about it you know i i think these people you know at least as much as they are conscious of have positive intentions you know um uh i'm not a fan of cbt but i think I think there are some incredibly brilliant, uh, well-intentioned in, in, people uh, who have developed this and continue to develop it. You look at their their scientific papers, and you know you can see you could see the thoughtfulness and the brilliance. Uh, so, um, uh, I just think that you know I guess they're working from their own limitations. You know, if, if what would be driving those limitations to, to me, I I think would be fear. You know, they're afraid of going beyond certain boundaries. Mm
0: -hmm. So. Yeah. I think fear does organize a lot of our work, doesn't it? In, in the field of psychology, psychotherapy. And again, McGill Chris would say, when we're in a fear state, we're over into the left brain and then we need to control. Right. Because when you're in fear, you need to control the situation pretty fast. And, and, and we do that in our work, don't we? And, And we, you know, in, of course, in psychology we do a lot of research and everything gets kind of deconstructed down to a p-value of 0.05 for instance you know so we've got this fear we're looking to control the situation but then we'll get a result from this p-value and from this research which gives us a sense an outcome but it doesn't necessarily give us an outcome that answers any questions we had initially at the outset of the experiment or had the research mm-hmm. so we end up getting going through a process through i think often fear and restriction to receive in an outcome. And then that becomes the reality and the truth, the definition of truth in our field. Um, even though it's been through a process, it is so far removed from the personal experience. And that's um, kind of crazy in itself. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you know, the, uh, the foundation of the neuro experiential model is the same as the foundation of brain spotting, which is the uncertainty principle. Okay. And the idea of, how do we understand what's going on in front of us, you know? And again, the the right brain is much more able to understand intuitively what's going on in, in a human exchange, especially around suffering and inhibition than the left brain is. Um, in fact, I think uh, probably the right brain only understands uncertainty. And the left brain, unless it's educated, you know, in a loving support of what way tends to only understand certainty. Mm. Um, but again, the uncertainty principle, if you hold it together with the evidence-based uh, attitude, uh, they don't go together, mm. you know, because, because evidence is no matter how much evidence you have, it's limited. And, I have I have larger goals in bringing out and and evolving this neuro-experiential model and having other people start to develop it with me and spin it off in other directions. You know, uh, I would like to present an alternative way for therapists and healers and anybody in in any endeavor like uh, such such as as our endeavors. Um, I would like there to be an alternative way of looking at things that can ultimately be the primary way of looking at things.
0: Yeah. Well, that's interesting. That's like, um, well, I suppose what I refer to as the ontology of attention, you know, how we look at something changes what comes into manifestation. Mm-hmm. Interesting talk about certainty and uncertainty there. Again, I've called on McGilchrist brain brain, um, neuroscience to talk about the, the the right brain is continually in life so it's in flow so it's uncertain because everything's unpacking and unraveling at once and when when uh, he was working in certain wards and i think oliver sachs wrote about this famously as well working in certain wards with people with the sort of right brain lesions so just operating predominantly with the left brain the level of confabulation was immense so you go in and you say to a patient uh, how's your arm today They'd look at their own arm and say to the doctor, That's not my arm. The doctor, yeah, sure, it is. It's attached to you. No, that's definitely not my arm because they couldn't feel it. And then the confabulation kicks in. You have to, the left brain has to find certainty at its peril otherwise. So then the response will be like, Oh, my mum came to visit me earlier this morning. She must have left her arm here. That's what it is. Right. Right.
1: Well, well, I, part of the neuro experiential model is that, I call it the neocortex. We're talking, you know, same thing. That without a constant flow of information from the subcortex, that the neocortex has nothing to work with. Okay? If you want to determine how many slices there are of a pie, okay, the neocortex looks at the pie and can't determine how many, how many slices there are to it unless it counts. One, two, three, four, five, six, or seven, eight. Okay. And, and even that, that's that's the neocortex trying to give itself some information. But it looks at the pie, the, the subcortex or the right brain, it, it knows. It knows what the configuration of that pie is even though it doesn't have an interest in, in hanging numbers on it, you know, Um, just like the subcortex or the, the right brain looks at its environment, its inner environment, its outer environment, its relationships, the community and all this intuitively it knows, you know, and, and only when that information gets passed over and it's, myriad of ways to the neocortex does the neocortex then start to reflect on it you know the the neocortex is nothing other than a storyteller
0: Mm -hmm.
1: okay and that's why with the lesions in the right brain you know uh that's i don't know whose arm that is because it has it's trying to make up it makes up a story and and we only see in these situations how absurd those stories are Okay, but um, to try to make sense of something neocortically or left brain is to try to tell us tell the story of it. And the story is always inaccurate. It's just a matter of how inaccurate it is. but but it shows also that the left brain just relying on its own devices, believes its own story. It makes up the story and then it believes it. which is like in a larger way, maybe that explains, the diagnostic model, you know, the evidence-based diagnostic model. It's it's made up this story, a very elaborate, you know, uh, story, and it believes it when patently it's not true. This is this is the, the kicker of the whole thing. And this is why the new neuro experiential model is, is basically like saying the king isn't wearing any clothes. Just because all of you are have this collective belief that he is even though you can see he's not that he's not wearing any clothes client comes into you okay and starts to talk about whatever they want to work on okay if you have a template of how to do it okay and you and you work with you know um targets and protocols and all these sort of things you're immediately reframing whatever the client is bringing in through your own template and and only if you have been really programmed will you believe that in its entirety you know because it can't be on uh you know I, lo- I love the term face validity you know on the face of it you know it's it's like you know if a person comes in and they happen to be missing an arm well Face validity tells you that something happened that caused them to lose a limb or to never have it in the first place. But some researchers can prove that the arm is there, you know, just like that, that uh, fallacious uh, uh, left brain we, we were talking about. Um, but it's obvious. It, it's, you see, you have to be so programmed that when the client starts to go in a different direction than you were expecting or than you were guiding. You have to be so programmed to to not recognize well something's happening. Okay, I'm trying to do this, but they're trying to do that. Part of the program is is that is that clients uh, become non-compliant, which actually they are. But non-compliance, you know, can be like uh, Gandhi, you know, refusing to go along with uh, British rule. You know, uh, it's so obvious. And and what in our trainings in brain spotting and we we guide the therapist to sit there and not say anything, and totally take in whatever the client says and follow them wherever they go, and when you do that, it's like, you know, it's the beginning of of dispelling this this myth, this programming.
0: Yeah, and when that happens, and I know that's going to sound strange to a lot of listeners to sit there and not say anything when you've been in that process and you're working with someone in that way, it's apparent that there may be few, if any, other times in their lives that they've had that experience to sit with another human in complete trust and where we're completely following them wherever they go. It's a really liberating and exciting journey when that happens.
1: Mm -hmm. And the therapist probably had never had that experience themselves. So how could they conceptualize being able to provide it for another person? I always say in every training and, you know, people look to me, I'm the discoverer and developer of brain spotting. I'm the expert, whatever people want to look at me as I always say, I am surprised many times every session. And uh, whenever I have thought something is something, you know, and I step in with it, I find out a hundred percent of the time I'm wrong. You know, people like, you know, well, how could the expert, you know, Never get it right. Well, it's because, you know, the system is so impossibly complex and unknowable. I just want to throw in another thing here. Um, As far as how we understand the brain right now, we understand a thousand times more about the brain than we did 50 years ago. So we think that we know a lot about the brain. Well, we used to know like, you know, one billionth, you know, we don't even know One millionth millionth now, you know, let's say it's one, for the most part, we don't understand the brain. Brain scientists, you know, we think that they know all the stuff about the brain. Well, none of them can agree with each other anyhow. So, so how could, how could there be some sort of um, unified understanding of the brain? But I think we get hung up on brain structures. That this is what happens in the hippocampus, and this is what happens in the amygdala, and this is what happens in the basal ganglia, and this is what happens, you know, um, in the, uh, uh, um, you know, whatever parts of the brain. Yeah. You know, that's like looking at all the different parts of an automobile, including the different parts of the engine, and thinking, well, this is what happens, you know, in the spine any spark plugs in the ignition system well if but it only works in terms of of the entirety of the automobile which is a very ridiculously simple simplified you know uh metaphor for for the brain and the whole and the brain doesn't uh, uh, totally operates with the rest of the body um uh they, they, i read an article recently that was talking about how the skeletal system has a way of holding trauma. Okay, I'll have to find that article and send it to you. Um, you know, so pro- on some level, the nervous, the brain, and the nervous system is com- is communicating to the skeletal system. You know, we would we think of fascia. You know, well, that's you know, connective. That's living. That's moving. Oh, the, the bones. Yeah, they're just you know. They're just like uh, uh, pickup sticks. Uh, So getting back to what I was saying, uh, we can't find anything in the brain. And you think if you have somebody go and have an MRI or a CAT scan, that you'll be able to see where the trauma is in the brain, where the dissociation is in the brain, where the parts are in the brain. No, you'll see a configuration of the brain. And by the way, and with MRIs, it just—it's a slide. It's not the whole brain. It's just a, you know a one slice of, of of the brain. Everything is in the entire brain. You know the brain is holographic. The brain is quantum. You know before quantum science, you know uh, f- uh, physics and mechanics, physics was not linear, but it but it was limited to what we could perceive with our senses. But quantum mechanics has shown us that it doesn't work the way that there's no logic to it. It doesn't fit that left brain logic and, and the brain I, 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 and, and I think maybe it took us so long to understand the quantum because uh, at least maybe in in the West, is it probably in the East and other cultures, they, they understood it intuitively for thousands of years, but it took us so long because we were looking at it from, uh, from our, our own limitations. You know, like the left brain can't really understand the quantum, you know, no matter how much you, you say, it, you, you referenced it earlier, that when you look at something, you change it. Yeah. And then when you look at away from it, it changes again. Mm-hmm. That makes absolutely no sense. Absolutely no sense. But it's part of science. Okay. What do, you, what do you think about all that stuff, Mark?
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, it's all um, very rich for me. Um, it, it brings up a few things. So There's a, a lovely phrase, again, it's by McGilchrist. It says, there are no parts to the brain. This is a, like a very beautiful neuroscientist, very well published. It says, there are no parts of the brain, the hippocampus and the thalamus and the basal gang. There are no parts of the brain, only networks. Mm-hmm there's an almost infinite array of networks in the brain itself and then of course connecting into the other networks that we might have whether they're um, body networks uh, interpersonal networks spiritual networks you know all of this array of, of networks that is so rich we can't possibly touch it and thinking about quantum um paula uh, a lovely quantum physicist who writes beautifully says for all of his years of studying in the quantum um, world of physics and things he realized there there are no objects there is no and there's no thing there's nothing there's no thing there are just relationships and until you understand that which is a very right brain sort of phenomenon until you understand that everything is going to seem compartmentalized and and dead in effect rather than alive interconnected and real and i just think when we bring the dead aspect into therapy you know it's something feels and I I remember working with many clients more into more traditional ways in psychology where the sessions have died you know I've just felt that sense of death and disconnection because I haven't been able to understand and fully relate to the the complexity like you're saying that everything is contextual and in a network effect and uh, until you can really embrace the immensity of that which is too big to fully fathom then um it, yeah, it's easy to, to try and dominate that. And I think that's a problem that we do in, in therapy uh, traditionally.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Freud had it right. I believe when he, when he used the model of free association as mm-hmm. a way of, Helping the client, you know, explore themselves and and find healing and so on. Uh, to be a little technical about it, you know, he said that that the um, that the analysand should be verbalizing whatever is coming to mind for them. When in brain spotting, um, you don't have to, you know, because again, that starts to make it come higher up in the system. Uh, but then he had this whole elaborate. Um, set of theories that were coming from the, one of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century that uh, have a certainty aspect to them, you know, and, and you can, you can look at how people can begin to get there, but somehow they, they veer off to the side or they pull back. Um, uh, But I, I think it's just, you know, it's a breath of fresh air for our field to recognize, you know, what we're talking about. And, mm-hmm. and it's funny, even though it's right brain, it has a logic of its own. Mm-hmm. But but to to catch that logic, you have to recognize that the system is impossibly complex. Mm-hmm. Once you recognize that, then how can you try to figure it out? You can't. It makes no sense. It becomes illogical to try to figure out an, a a system that is too complex to to know. And it's always the system's always changing.
0: You know. And the experience of whatever is happening is beyond words, isn't it? It's um, we touched on it before. Black boxes. It was funny, you know. Many decades ago, there was a, a French artist who did a picture, drew a picture of a, a pipe, the one like the one you smoke. <laughs> that one, I'm holding one up here, drew a picture of a pipe and he just wrote underneath C'est un Pep, you know, it is not pipe. <clears throat> and everybody came and was <laughs> outraged in the art gallery, what do you mean it's not a pipe? It was, it was just non-man, just a picture of a pipe. So it's not a pipe, it's a representation of a pipe. The pipeness of pipe can never be anything other than what it is. Me doing a painting of a pipe is always going to be a secondary and an impoverished representation of the actuality of, of reality.
1: Well, I'll, I'm going to push that even further. You've heard me say that, uh, that the brain simulates everything so that if you're holding a pipe and I'm looking at it, my occipital cortex, you know, is simulating what that pipe appears to look like, but it's, even that, you know, is just the simulation. It's not the pipeness. If you handed it over to me and I was holding at it, not only looking at it, but feeling it, the feeling of the pipe would be again, something that would go through my thalamus and, you know, and other places and, and would, you'd have the simulation of what it feels like. So you can't de- be, you know, since we're simulating everything, you know, it's not even just the painting it's, what our eyes and our fingers and, you know, ears and nose tell us, you know, it's, you know, what what we're talking about is, is it's not, it's not arcane information. It's out there, mm. you know, but people just don't want to kind of put that together. At least in the West, I can't speak for the, for in in the east or the southern hemispheres, and all that, you know, and the islands around the world, because you know, I assume that they're smarter than us,
0: yeah, and yeah, got some millennia to um head start on us as well, in, in many ways. So that, that's helpful, right? <clears throat> so, with with, I mean, these you know, these fascinating developments and discussions, and if we are not going to be you know completely pessimistic about therapy in 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 the east or the west now but you know, in a way that we talk about it through a psychotherapeutic lens oh yeah how i suppose you know the listener will be saying well how do we work more in tune with the immense and innate wisdom of the inner system considering like say if we are a brain and i think we're probably much greater than that but we're living in a black box and just relying on senses to make an interpretation of reality and we're always constructing reality to some extent or another so if this is going on how can therapy be more effective and with this neuro experiential lens
1: well um again the, the neuro experiential lens or model is is not fixed in any way it it can't help itself but be evolving all the time you know um, right you know I've developed the the core of brain spotting from the inside window, from the reflexes we see in people's eyes when they're activated and that the outside window, the inside window where person just feels it the most, the connection, the access the most to the spontaneous gazes of gaze spotting where people just kind of look, you know, and then I've evolved that into one eye and Z axis, Z axis, uh, and all kinds of permutations and combinations. Um, People think this is such, when they study it, this is such breakthrough stuff. This is such amazing stuff. And I laugh because to me, it's so absolutely preliminary and elementary. So the idea of where we go from here is is to see the knowledge of brain spotting, the wisdom of brain spotting as anything but fixed, but as just just the gateway or the pathway to where we go next or pathways from where we go next. Um, uh, and the last chapter of my book, I say, brain spotting, the goal of brain spotting is to become defunct. You know, goal of brain spotting is for other models to come up that do as, as much better than brain spotting does as brain spotting does to prior models. Um, so, uh, it's, it's always going to be, it's meant to be evolving and changing. And sometimes finding out that our most cherished beliefs actually weren't true. And that's not only okay, that's a good thing. And the reason it's a good thing, it's just, there's a singular reason. There's more than that. But there's a singular reason. And that reason is because we want to help people heal as best as possible you know therapists uh, because we're programmed forgot that you know when you go into a session you're not going in to do brain spotting you're not going in to do ifs se uh, emdr cbt you're going in to provide the best healing you can for those 45 to 60 minutes or whatever time it is and it doesn't matter what it is you know I don't go in to do brain spotting. I go in sitting there trying to, on all levels, trying to optimize the person's healing for the time they're with me and then the time after me until they come again if they do. Um, that's what this is all about. But the diagnostic model, you know, the, the pathological model, the evidence-based model um, is ant- antithetical to that. I don't give a, you know, I'd be happy if tomorrow brain spotting got blown out of the water by, by therapy, uh, i X P I'd celebrate it. You know, that's what I'm looking for. Mm. You know, the brain spotting is not Coca-Cola. It's not Ford motors, you know, it's not Apple. Mm. Okay. We're not looking to maximize our profits. You know, we're looking to promote and liberate healing.
0: Mm.
1: And again, that's central to the neuro-experiential model. Mm. I'll just say a couple of things here. The neuro-experiential model can and could and hopefully should be embraced by the larger field and then shaped and altered by the larger field. That's what it's intended for. Gaze spotting is one particular, one small but important part of brain spotting that should be embraced by the entire field of therapy and healing. Um, it's and and people think, oh well, then I'm doing brain spotting. You're not doing brain spotting. You're observing what's happening in the natural environment. You know, noticing reflexes. You know, um, if you're using eye movements and you see a reflex, you should think, you should observe it. Think about it. See if there's something you can do with it. You're not doing brain spotting. All the components of brain spotting are not brain spotting. They're natural. They're natural in the, in the human environment. Yes. So, so, you know, again, it's like native peoples don't believe you can own the land any more than you can own, own the air and the sky, you know, and the rivers and so on. Um, you can't that which comprises brain spotting. There's no ownership to it, although people inside and and outside of it assume that there is mm. a big joke, squeezing the lemon. This is this is the cosmic joke, squeezing the lemon. Okay, when you get to a zero, we say a zero is, isn't a zero until you squeeze it. Okay, well that's part of brain spotting. Why? Because the head of brain spotting noticed it, tried it, figured it out, and so on. It's not part of brain spotting. The idea that that there are dissociative barriers that even when a, a, a person feels like a zero, that there's more there, and that there's ways of getting to and through those dissociative barriers, that's not brain spotting. There is, you know, I'll say something crazy. There is no such thing as brain spotting. It's just a group of coll- collected harmonious, evolving ideas.
0: When I, when I was trained by yourself you know, some 10 years ago, or so in Brain Spotting, and I wanted to take it to my people, and I work with people of all ages, um, but I do a lot of work with uh, fostered, fostered and adopted children, so they've had the most complex start to life, many of which are already born addicted and, to heroin and on methadone programs, you know, from the moment they're born, that kind of thing. So you can imagine that the way the brain has had to adapt to be able to cope with that. And so when um, I've really wanted to work with them um, and do some kind of bring in some brain spotting at first, it was really interesting because what you have just said there, like a five year old I was working with at the time just showed me, Mark, we're not doing that. We're not doing brain spotting. And so I had to learn just sort of thinking on my feet from doing it to being it in a way. It was almost like it was a model of framework within which I could hold the space within in a way that made it tolerable for that person to process whatever they needed to, but without me forcing it at their own level, at their own pace and in their own way. Gone with the pointers, gone with the music, gone was half my room out the window with one particular child. You know, it was just all out the window. But that all was part, you know, I started to learn that's all part of the process, part of the expression. This is all part of the deep work that we're doing. And from there on, you know, this real, very fast and, and graphic lesson I had in not doing brain spotting, but kind of, you know, encapsulating it or embodying it in a way or the values of it in a very mindful kind of way um, with the most liberating things and still bring that into my work now and into the trains that we do. So so thank you for mentioning that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, um, the clients are our teachers and our guides, even if they're a five-year-old who's been through the foster care system. That kid is still brilliant. Mm -hmm. And if you set the right circumstances, they will start to direct you like this child did. And they will have an experience that they would have never had otherwise in their lifetime. Mm. And they are changed forever by that, even if it's hard to see, you know.
0: Mm. It's it's interesting. It it seems to open up avenues. And I'm interested because you've got so much experience in in doing this work and i've noticed over my 10 years it's really dropped down deeper and deeper and it's something you touched on when we were lucky enough to have a a phase four training recently um, uh, here that over time and this is going to sound a little bit i don't know metaphysical perhaps but over time what i found is i can really not control my client because i'm not trying to do that but I can really kind of lean in deeper or pull back a little further into my presence and my awareness and my availability with somebody without saying or changing anything I'm doing or even non-verbal communication. There's ways of being able to kind of really feel into an ener- almost like an energetic connection in the, I don't know, the co-regulatory field with a client that can really, I found, it's just profound. It's been really kind of meaningful. I'm still kind of working it out, but is this something that you've been... Exploring. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's not brain
1: spotting. <laughs> it's, it's nature. Yeah. You know, uh, the uncertainty principle guides us to be open to everything and anything. Yeah. Which is, uh, unless you want to say brain, that's what brain spotting is, and you could argue that, uh, I would say that goes way beyond brain spotting. Uh-huh. You can't capture something like that with a name or a concept. Mm. And if you try to, you'll either fail or and realize it, or you'll fail and not realize it. Mm. And you'll think that you have captured the uncapturable.
0: That would be a left brain error, I think, to do that. Classic classic
1: mm. and then a further left brain error would be to study it uh you know as so-called evidence
0: yeah mm. thinking of Her- heraclitus said a lovely um phrase that everything both is and is not at the same time so i'm hearing you saying that about brain spotting something you've just dis- developed, discovered named written about and trained so many people in but grain spotting both is and is not at the same time, I'm hearing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. People who are trained in other models, unless they are extremely limited or totally programmable, will always furtively modify the method in the model. Okay. Usually, if they'll do anything, they'll make it more relational than it is or than it was intended to be. You know, but they do it on the DL, on the down low, you know, like as if making it their own, like, like there's something wrong about it or disobedient about it. But, but then what ends up happening is, is by modifying it and mollifying it, they, and they, they do that because they intuitively they know and experientially they know that they can't just do the the abcs of that model but then the effect that they get because they have modified it they then attribute back to the model you know without even realizing that what they did is not in the model or what they did is antithetical to the model they still heap the praise on the model um which is again part of that you know insidious uh ever-present uh, programming that goes on. In BrainSpot, you know, you've heard me say this countless times at the end of a training. I say, don't try to do it my way. Don't try to do it Mark's way. Find your own way of doing it, you know, which is a way of saying this isn't this isn't even a model. You know, this is a set of frames and perspectives that you you can't just do it as it's being handed to you, because it's not being handed to you, you have to figure out what it is and what makes sense about it, and how to do that. We're guiding people to do what other people uh, other people do secretly with other models. We're saying with brain spotting, it's not only okay to do it; you should be modifying this. That's that's very neuro-experiential, by the way.
0: Mm. Mm and that's interesting from a kind of western attachment perspective you might be looking at whether this is almost like a, a an area where a therapist is skilled enough that there's this kind of level that we might equate to teenage years of separation individuation where you've got some of the fundamentals a rudimentary sense of what it's like being on his planet and then to start experimenting with it and you know doing your own uh, looking at the feedback to you know, to inform your own uh, judgment on these things
1: yeah. Well, what teenagers are skeptical, you know, it's, it's so uh, adolescently developmental to not believe something just because the adults in the adult world is telling it to you. And that's what the experimentation to a great extent is for in, in adolescent is the idea of finding out whether what is being told to you is true or not and what ways it is and what ways it isn't, and, you know, so, uh, you know, that's that's a very interesting, you know, analogy for, uh, you know, for trying to find your own way. And, and the other thing with brain spotting is we say not only make it your own and do it your own way, it's you're going to be evolving with it as long as you're doing it. So that no matter what, how you make it your own, that cannot and will never be static. It will always be fluid that i mean yes there are some models that put this forward they're more buddhist you know oriented models or um other things like that but you never hear this in a model that comes from the west and it wasn't because i studied buddhism or you know uh you know other eastern or indigenous wisdom you know, I just kind of saw what was in the environment. And I, I, you know what? I saw it from the beginning. I saw it all along. That's just my nature. That's one of my proclivities, maybe gifts. You know, um, I saw things when people were telling me, my elders, as I was being developed as a therapist, I saw things that they weren't seeing where I saw things differently, you know, all the way from the beginning. And that's, and that's kind of what, you know, was my own trajectory with uh, the neuro experiential model.
0: Mm-hmm. That's really interesting, isn't it? Cause I can relate to that in my own pathway. And sometimes in the trainings I was having, um, I was often questioning and being questioned whether I was on the right course when I was doing my doctorate in psychology, because, I'm quite sure that I wanted to be constructed and contained within this box that seemed to be so restrictive. But mm. do you think um, you've, you know you've trained so many people? Do you think that people listening to this, that maybe therapists and and are wondering whether they could work into this, kind of yeah? What's what's the? It's not easy to give a, a, a straight answer to this question, but those people that may be anxious about learning into a model like this, that will be making challenges on them because it's about deconstructing some of your previous ways of working and becoming so much more attuned with the client and their healing system. Wonder, you know, what would say to them? Uh, David. Well, I want you to think of a neighborhood in
1: London. Just give me the name of a neighborhood in London.
0: Okay. Um, let's say Camden.
1: Camden. Okay. We have a city in New Jersey called Camden also, one in Maine called Camden. I don't think we got it on our own. I think we kind of cribbed it from you guys. British, Camden. It, it used to be going back decades, even centuries, but decades, that there were some people who were born in Camden and lived in Camden and never left Camden during their entire lives. Okay. It's the same thing in New York and any other place. There are people who who lived their entire lives in Camden, Camden who never went to, you know, uh, Kensington Park, even though they probably could have walked there. Right? Do, uh, do, you, do you know the phenomenon I'm talking about? Uh-huh. Okay. Well we would see those people as being so delimited and not, maybe not even knowing that they were delimited that's they had such limited scope okay you know to me someone who just studies a model or a few models and then lives in it their entire you know professional career their healing career is no different than the person who just lived and died in Camden. You know, but it's so obvious when you look at it from the outside that it's a big city, a big country and a big world. You know, and even if you never get to all the places you want to get to, you know, there's they're there. What What do you think about that way of looking at things?
0: Yeah, it brings up another quote of keep finding these quotes in my head today. We're talking to you. There was there's something about it's it's the chains we can't see that really, really tether us. It's the chains we can't see that really tether us, you know, that that inability to even know that we've restricted ourselves so much so that we can't see beyond, you know, the very small parameters of of our of our world. Mm -hmm. Uh, So hopefully this podcast in a way, you know, it will in itself be a way to be able to look wider, you know, into this kind of phenomena that you've been describing beautifully, David. Yeah. So I know we're about out of time for today. So just, again, thank you so much. Such a a beautiful, rich, and inspirational conversation.
1: Thank you not only for having me on, but thank you for, uh, you know, uh, sharing the space and dialoguing with me.
0: Absolutely wonderful. Thanks, David. And look forward to speaking to you again soon.
1: Let's, Let's do it again.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode. And if you're curious to find out more about this guest of the show, then please see their links below. Thank you for joining me for Awe in Trauma. Until next time, bye-bye.